morning. I'd like to ask you to take your Bible and turn to a couple of passages of Scripture. We're going to be looking at Luke chapter 10 in just a moment, uh, as you can see on the screen. But first, I'd like for us to turn to Romans, uh, the book of Romans in chapter 13. Romans 13, just a couple of verses here, verses 8 through 10. I would like to ask you, once you've found your place, if you're able, to go ahead and stand with me as we read God's Word. The Apostle Paul writes, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Now would you turn with me to our text for today's message. It's Luke chapter 10. We're looking at verses 25 through 37. I want to give us a little more context and start reading actually in verse 21. In that same hour, he rejoiced. Of course, that's Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. 
He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we ask you that your powerful word would work in our hearts this morning. I ask that your mighty spirit would make us receptive to your message. Would you please open our eyes to the beauty and authority of Jesus speaking in this text? Would you teach us and help us to obey his voice and to do your will? And would you glorify yourself through the faith and obedience of your sons and daughters? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please go ahead and be seated. I want to let you know um, at the very beginning how God has been using this portion of his word uh, in my heart over the last few weeks. Uh, Luke chapter 9 and 10 present us a picture of the Christian life that I have become more and more convinced of and more passionate about over a period of really quite a few years. But I've also started to see recently how I'm afraid um, a lot of that passion, a lot of that conviction is still largely theoretical. Uh, Because I have come across numerous situations where I I saw a person who, who was in need or who might be in need and Uh, I find myself shrinking back. And it looks like I'm responding more like the priest and the Levite in this story. Instead of the Good Samaritan. The reason I tell you this up front is I just want to be honest with you and express my need, my spiritual need, and my desire that God would work in me and in us to actually replicate the person of Christ in our daily life. I know that is your desire as well. And that's why he's given us his word. So let's look at this passage, famously known as the Good Samaritan, the story of the Good Samaritan. Everyone loves this story. Uh, Many of you grew up hearing this story probably all your life. And probably the story is so familiar, you could tell it pretty easily and pretty well, just from memory. A man is traveling down the dangerous road from Jerusalem to Jericho. He's attacked by a band of robbers who not only take his money and his possessions, they beat him, they strip him of his clothes, and leave him half dead. So he's in a desperate condition, lying on the side of the road, And if someone does not stop and give him help, he is probably going to die before very long. But someone does come by. First a priest, then a Levite, two very religious, very respected members of their society, 
and we would expect them to stop and help this man who is in obvious need. But apparently they can't be bothered, they're too busy, their time is too important. Whatever reason they may give to justify their behavior, it's clear they lack compassion and they're indifferent to this man lying helpless beside the road and they pass him by on the other side and continue on their way. But finally someone comes by who is not only a complete stranger, he is a member of a different class. He is a racial and religious enemy. And this man, the most unlikely of individuals to show compassion and give help to the one in need, he stops on his journey, he cares for the man's wounds, he takes him to shelter, and takes on the financial responsibility of providing for all this man's needs. Now taken by itself, this story might cause us to feel several things. It might cause us to feel compassion for the injured man. It might stir a sense of indignation toward the uncaring individuals who wouldn't even help him. And very likely it will make us feel warmed and inspired by the example of the man who showed compassion and helped the one in need. But if that's all we get out of the story, then we really haven't seen the whole picture or seen the true point of the story. Because the story of the Good Samaritan comes to us in a context. First, there is the broader context of the Gospel of Luke. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to be betrayed and arrested, to suffer and die, and to be raised again. And Luke has brought this to our attention in a couple of ways in his gospel. First, there is the direct teaching of Jesus, beginning in chapter 9, verses 21 and 22. You can turn back there. It's probably just the page before it. He tells them that the Son of Man, he tells his disciples, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. And that revelation is repeated just a little later in the same chapter. And then in verse 51, we get an important transition where Luke tells us, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And Luke is going to remind us of this several times between that transition in chapter 9 and what we call the passion narrative in chapter 22 and 23. So chapter 13, verse 22, Luke writes, he went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And in seven, chapter 17, verse 11, he says, on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And then in chapter 18, verse 31, as we move closer to the climax of the story, it's recorded that taking the twelve, he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. And everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. And then one more time, chapter 19, verse 28. When he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem, he's going to Jerusalem, the city that stones the prophets. That's where he has to go to fulfill his mission. 
And the reason this is important for us this morning is if we take the story of the Good Samaritan by itself, cut off from the structural context of the coming cross that Luke provides us with, we could end up taking it as a piece of moralistic advice teaching us to do good and be kind and to help people in need. But that limited understanding of the story is disproven when we see how it functions within the cross-focused framework of the Gospel of Luke. Now, of course, doing good and being kind and compassionate and helping those in need is an essential part of the story. It is how we show love to our neighbor. But the way Luke has recorded the story shows us there is a bigger question here, there's a bigger issue than the question of correct behavior. The lawyer's initial question is all about good behavior and its reward. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus is going to answer with a couple of questions of his own. And by the time he's done, we're supposed to see a huge contrast between the one who tries to justify himself and the one who actually fulfills the law. And that's where the story of the Good Samaritan is meant to take us. Away from a moralistic, works-based theology in which we seek to justify ourselves and straight toward a theology of the cross. But it's not just an abstract theology in which we simply give approval to certain key doctrines. It is a practical theology that teaches us to take up the cross as a way of life. And that's part of the message of Jesus recorded by Luke as well. So again, back in chapter 9, verse 23, he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Following Jesus, trusting Jesus enough to follow him means carrying a cross. The Christian life is a cross-shaped life. And the cross that waits for Jesus and the cross that he calls his followers to carry are inseparably connected. And as we move into chapter 10, we get a better picture of how this works out. In the opening verses of Luke 10, <clears throat> we see Jesus appointing his followers to go into the towns and villages ahead of him as representatives of him and his kingdom. They are supposed to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. They are supposed to give signs of the presence of the kingdom by powerful miracles. And they are supposed to pronounce judgment on those who do not receive them uh, or their message. Well, this turns out to be an exhilarating experience for the disciples. They come back to Jesus. We read verse, in verse 17, they're joyful and excited because of the authority he has given them to do amazing things like casting out demons. And Jesus gives not exactly a rebuke, but what seems like a caution. This exciting, impressive ministry, casting out demons, healing the sick, raising the dead, <clears throat> that is not your ultimate source of joy. Your true and lasting joy comes from the fact that your names are written in heaven. That is because God has chosen to reveal himself to them 
through His own Son. And they have the privilege of seeing things that prophets and kings from generations and centuries past had desired to see but had never been able to. And now in the fullness of time, Jesus stands before them as the one who reveals God's purpose and establishes God's kingdom and accomplishes God's salvation. But there are many who do not and cannot see. And it's at this point in the overall story that Luke chooses to introduce this certain lawyer. He is an expert in biblical law. He is the perfect example of the kind of man Jesus referred to in verse 21. Father, Lord of heaven and earth, you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. This man is clearly wise and understanding. He knows all about the law of God. But for him, the real meaning of the law is hidden because he is blind to the true identity of this teacher he wants to challenge with his question. So it's pretty ironic, isn't it? The law expert is challenging the one who actually fulfills the law. So this is how Luke chooses to introduce this lawyer. He's one of those who can't see. Until the Father and the Son choose to reveal themselves, he's going to remain blind. And we're supposed to observe this man's spiritual blindness as the dialogue unfolds. Now notice the dialogue is divided into two parts. The first one is the shorter part, verses 25 through 28, and then the second part is verses 29 through 37. Each of these parts basically follow the same pattern. In each section, before Luke tells us the question asked by the lawyer, he's going to tell us the motive, the reason or the motive behind the question. So the reason for the first question is, he's putting Jesus to the test. Notice he's not humbled and broken because of his sin. He's not asking what he must do to be saved from the wrath of God, like the Philippian jailer would ask Paul and Silas in Acts. He's not crying out that God would be merciful to him, a sinner. He seems pretty confident he has the bases covered. He just wants to see if Jesus measures up to his scrupulous theological standards. Well, Jesus begins to turn the tables on him by asking him a question. What is written in the law? And that's a good place to begin because that gives us God's standard, not mere human opinion. And to the lawyer's credit, he gives a good answer straight from the law. Deuteronomy 6. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and from the book of Leviticus and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus affirms that's the right answer. If you do that, you will live. And apparently the weight of those words make, makes the lawyer feel that now he's the one being examined instead of Jesus. So he tries to counter by asking another question. And again, Luke tells us the reason for the question before he asks it. He desired to justify himself. 
Luke is putting his finger on something important here. This idea of justifying self is something he calls our attention to in a couple of other places as well. This is what the Pharisees are guilty of. So in chapter 16, Jesus tells them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. And in chapter 18, the reason he tells the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector is because, Luke writes, it's because of those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Jesus is targeting a way of life filled with self-congratulation because of what others think. And the assumption at work is that if people think highly of me and say good things about me, that must mean God is pleased with me as well. It means lowering God's standards to fit human expectations. And it's exactly what the lawyer is trying to do with his question. Please note, this is the M.O. of the self-justifier. Not how can I show love to someone in need, but how much do I have to do? How far do I have to go? Who do I have to love? When have I done enough? You can see the law of love is not written on this man's heart, as Jeremiah prophesied that it would be under the new covenant. Instead, the law is viewed as this external standard hanging over us that condemns or justifies based on how well we measure up. So the answer that Jesus gives at this point, which we know as the parable of the Good Samaritan, is nothing less than the New Covenant gospel alternative to the self-justifying legal perspective of the lawyer. With this story, Jesus is doing two things at the same time. He is destroying self-justification. He is smashing the pretenses of those who try to be justified by human effort. But he does so by painting a picture of what it actually looks like to live in true fulfillment of the law. So like everywhere else in the four Gospels, the call to forsake self-righteousness and the call to embrace and follow Christ are not two separate calls. They're one and the same. It's the call to take up the cross. So here's what, it's look like. here's what it looks like when you find a man beaten up lying on the side of a road. You interrupt your journey, you give him your stuff, and you take on his needs as your own. That's living according to the law of love, which Paul describes in Romans 13, which we opened with reading this morning. It's fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture. It's speaking and acting as those who are judged under the law of liberty. It's showing faith by our works, as we've been hearing from James chapter 2 over the last couple of weeks. It's not asking, how much do I have to do to meet my requirements and gain approval? But because faith is working through love, it says, how can I help this person in need? Those are two very different perspectives. And only one of those perspectives will equip you to pour yourself out sacrificially and without reservation the way the Samaritan does in this story. And this is what we're supposed to observe about the Good Samaritan in contrast to the self-justifying lawyer. The Samaritan is not asking how much he has to do, how far he has to go, how much help is enough. 
He's acting in a way that shows he's not even thinking about those kinds of questions. The cultural boundaries he's willing to cross, the social expectations he's willing to contradict, the investment of time and the financial risk he's willing to take. Notice he's basically giving this guy his credit card and telling him, whatever you need, it's yours. His example says a lot about the lawyer and his question. And I think it says a lot about us as well. Because if we are honest with ourselves, we find we have our limits. We think we should only have to go so far and give so much. And if we feel guilty at times, we will look for affirmation from others who will tell us, you've done enough. No one could expect you to do more than you have. And Jesus confronts us with a different way of thinking. Because he confronts us with a cross. When you take up a cross, you don't get to set limits and say, this is how far I'm going to carry it. How far does the cross take you? It takes you all the way to your death. So the call we hear from Jesus in this story, to love your neighbor as yourself, to go and do likewise, is nothing less than a call to die. Not necessarily a literal physical death, because it's not just once. He calls us to die daily, to die repeatedly in acts of sacrifice that take on the needs of others as our own. But I think that raises some really big questions that you may be wrestling with, you may be asking yourself right now. Number one, is this really good news? Is it the gospel? Or is it just more law? Is Jesus just holding out an impossible standard for us that is really nothing more than an evangelistic strategy to convict us of our sin by showing us how far short we fall? Or does he really expect us to live the way that he describes? And second, if he does expect us to live this way, how is it possible? We look into our own hearts and we say, how do sinners with naturally selfish hearts learn to kill their selfish instincts and put the needs of others above their own desires, their own comforts? I would say these are important theological questions and they're huge personal questions. But I think the answers are pretty clear within the context that Luke gives us here in chapters 9 and 10. First of all, if you are a follower of Jesus... If you are a Christian, he not only expects you to take up your cross, he requires it. Yes, you will find yourself falling short day after day after day. Yes, you will need to come to him for mercy and forgiveness. But as you receive his mercy, you will find yourself equipped to show mercy to others in increasing measure. So this picture of the Christian life that's found in the story of the Good Samaritan, it may be challenging and convicting. If you take it by itself, it may actually be discouraging and lead to further defeat. But within its proper context, 
it becomes extraordinarily beautiful. Because coming from anyone else, the call to take up a cross and give yourself in costly sacrifice would not be good news. But the reason this is good news is because it comes from Jesus. The one who calls you to take up a cross has already carried a cross for you. So he reminds you in this chapter where to find your source of true joy. Not in amazing deeds of impressive ministry, but in the fact your name is written in heaven. He tells you how you are blessed by the gracious will of the Father and the Son who have chosen to reveal themselves to you. And he shows you at the very end of this chapter, which we didn't read, but he shows you what one thing is necessary. It's a passage that our brother Aaron led us through a few weeks ago. What is necessary, not the deeds of service carried out to meet the expectations of others, which is how Mary, Martha seemed to be functioning, but sitting at the feet of Jesus to learn from him. Those reminders of grace do not contradict the example of the Good Samaritan. They provide its proper context. Only a life saturated with the grace of Christ can extend grace to those in need. Service extended to others out of a sense of guilt or self-justification or self-congratulation quickly turns sour and fails to accomplish its purpose because it still promotes self. And true self-denial and true cross-bearing is only learned at the cross of Christ. I think here's another way to make the same point. When you come across a situation where someone is in serious need, and you know that it's going to be costly and risky and time-consuming to give the help that the situation really calls for, <clears throat> what determines whether you will respond more like the priest and the Levite in the story or more like the Good Samaritan is whether you have seen Christ coming to your rescue when you were lying helpless on the side of the road at the point of death. Your rescue by Christ is the only thing that can give you the genuine motivation and perseverance to participate in the rescue of others. Now before we close, I thought it would be good to explore with just a little more detail what it would look like for us if we really started to live out this picture of the Christian life we see in Luke chapter 9 and chapter 10, how would it affect our attitude towards our brothers and sisters and other members of our community who are in need? And I think we can see at least three answers from this passage if we take it within its proper context. Number one, our deeds of service will be marked by genuine compassion not guilty compulsion or self-righteous superiority. Our deeds of service will be marked by genuine compassion, not guilty compulsion or self-righteous superiority. When our service to others is shaped by the cross, we minister out of a sense of gratitude and humility which protect us from a number of harmful attitudes. 
It keeps us from developing what we call a God complex, where we think we can be everyone's savior. We end up looking down on others and having an exalted view of ourselves. It helps us, it helps to remove feelings of resentment, which can develop when we see people making irresponsible choices, making a mess of their lives, and we feel like we have to bail them out. The cross reminds us that we're a mess, that Jesus found us when we were helpless, that he paid the price of eternal salvation for us and clothed us with his robes of righteousness. And from that position of knowing our right standing with God, we have the freedom to pour ourselves out for the good of others from the overflow of what we have received, not because we're worried about what other people think of us. Number two, our deeds of service will be costly and time-consuming and will exhibit the same sense of practical urgency that we apply to meeting our own needs. This is what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. The degree of sacrifice carried out by the Good Samaritan may sound to our ears as pretty radical, pretty extreme, but it's really nothing more than what we would hope others would do for us or what we would do for ourselves if we were capable. We don't hold back when it comes to meeting our own needs, so we must not hold back when it comes to meeting the needs of others. Many times, that means something is going to interfere with some plans you may have laid out for yourself. Some time to yourself, some project you wanted to get done, maybe some new purchase or a vacation that you were looking forward to. It may mean something will interfere with the plans you have made for your kids. They may not get to play on the sports team that they really wanted. We know playing and watching sports is a huge idol in American life. Of course, I can't say that participating in organized sports is a sin. But if it keeps you from living out biblical priorities like ministering to the needs of others, then it may have to go. Maybe your plans for retirement are not in line with biblical priorities. It may be something you have wanted for a long time, but the model of the Good Samaritan and ultimately the model of the cross show us that loving your neighbor is costly. True love takes the shape of a cross. It costs everything. And the only way it makes sense is if we're looking beyond the cross to the resurrection as our reward. Number three, if we are living out this model of the Christian life, then our deeds of service will cross cultural and social divides in a way that mystifies and sometimes offends our critics. If we are living out this model of the Christian life, our deeds of service will cross cultural and social divides in a way that mystifies and sometimes offends our critics. Every culture has a set of rules that not only defines acceptable and unacceptable behavior, they also identify acceptable and unacceptable people. And what kind of associations the acceptables and the unacceptables are allowed to have with one another. And Jesus is always turning those rules upside down. 
For many of his listeners, he may have ruined the story by making the hero of the story a Samaritan. We get a sense the lawyer might not have wanted to answer Jesus' question in the most direct or obvious way. Who was a neighbor to the man in need? He doesn't come out and say the Samaritan. He just says the one who showed him mercy, like he's only going to give the answer if he's forced into it. The message of Jesus making a Samaritan a true member of the kingdom of God, fulfilling the law of God because it's written on his heart, that's offensive. In our own day, we have a different set of rules and expectations. But the message of grace that makes us all equal at the foot of the cross is still offensive. We don't want to think we're as bad as that bum or that addict or that prostitute or that criminal. And the truth is, if we start sharing our lives with people in that social stratum, we will probably find some opposition to what we're doing. And yet at the same time, our age is hungry for that very sort of thing. Our society has gotten rid of all kinds of traditional rules in the name of inclusiveness and equality, but it hasn't actually achieved those goals. One man still looks down on another. One class still treats another with suspicion and contempt. Because it turns out those things cannot be changed by legislation or education or by any human effort. The answer is found in the law of love. And the law of love is only learned at the cross. If Redeemer Church learns to demonstrate that kind of love, I think people in our community will start to notice. There may be parts of that they won't even like. We might raise some eyebrows with the kind of people hanging out on our church property. That's okay. Jesus got accused of something very similar. Oh, that that would be true of us. Oh, that there would be enough evidence that pe for people to accuse us of being friends of sinners. I absolutely believe many of you want this very thing. I know from speaking with you that you want these kinds of qualities to be evident and abundant in your life. I believe you want Redeemer to be the kind of church that is known for Christ-like, cross-like, sacrificial love with a warm, welcoming atmosphere that lets the worst of sinners know they are accepted in Christ. And if we're not that kind of church, we have to ask why. And the most likely answer is that we have not been captivated by the message of the cross, the way it is held out to us in the Gospel of Luke and the rest of the New Testament. Let's pray right now. And let's continue to pray this week and in the weeks to come that God will teach us to love our neighbors by filling our hearts with the glory of the cross. Ben, would you lead us?